The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. seven weeks of Lent, we've had a chance on, I believe, four of those weeks to look at several of Jesus' last words from the cross. We looked at Jesus when he proclaimed, Father, forgive them from the cross. We heard Jesus tell the thief that was crucified next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. We heard that Jesus uh, expressed his love for his mother by entrusting her to the disciple John. And then last week, Dr. Rogers took us through that crucial statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now tonight, we come to the final moments of Jesus' life and look at the words that he uttered as he was on the very verge of his death. I always feel that as we walk through Holy Week and we come closer and closer to Thursday night and and Friday, I begin to feel more and more just the magnitude of, of what Jesus suffered and accomplished. And even as you read the Gospels, I think you have the same sense. In all of the Gospels, you have sort of a, a fast-paced narrative through the first half or two-thirds of the Gospel relating Jesus' miracles and his parables. And then in this last Holy Week, the narrative slows down and gives us a, a, a weighty hour-by-hour account when we come to these last this last day of what Jesus suffered on our behalf as he accomplished the very crux of God's salvation plan. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 19. You know, in John chapter 19, in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has already suffered much throughout the day. He's gone through his trial for whatever trial it was worth with the Jews overnight. He faced Pilate in the morning and was condemned unjustly. He was passed over for release in favor of Barabbas, the criminal. He's been flogged. He's been crowned with the crown of thorns. He's been mocked and struck. He's been condemned to die, forced to carry his own cross, crucified with criminals, watched his clothes be divided by lot, endured the pain of crucifixion. And now when we arrive at verse 28, Jesus is on the very verge of giving up his life. Would you read with me just these three verses, John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we can't help but feel that we are looking on holy ground as we hear these last words that Jesus uttered. We pray that you would speak to us 
and the magnitude of the salvation that Jesus accomplished as we look at these words tonight. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. It is finished. These brief words that we want to look at tonight, we've all probably said something like this at some point. I know when I think of the phrase, it's done, it's finished, the first thing that comes to mind is sprinting outside from a college classroom with the final exam of the semester in the books. The cramming that's taken place, the studying that I've done is, is over, there's the sense of relief as I anticipate the rest that's ahead. These words, of course, are not just words of relief. They can also be words of celebration. Some of you who are basketball fans may remember back in 2016 when LeBron James completed a comeback championship for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Courtside after the game, he said, I'm coming home with what I said I was going to do. Or maybe these words can carry all the waves of emotions that we feel when life's threats or a dangerous situation is resolved. I can imagine myself saying something like these words when the stay-at-home order is finished and the coronavirus threat passes. But when we turn to John 19 and see Jesus hanging on the cross, knowing that all was now accomplished, uttering what in the Greek is just one word, tetelestai, one word, it is finished. This one word carries more depth of meaning than all the scenarios we could pile up from history or sports or our own personal lives. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, said of this verse, he said, it would need all the words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain the depth of this one word that Jesus spoke. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. Well, as Charles Spurgeon says, we cannot plumb all the depths of this word tonight, but we can consider some of its most significant meaning. And I want to think about this one word in Greek, these three words in English, under two main points. First, I want to consider what it is that Jesus has finished or accomplished. And then I want to consider what Jesus' finished work means for us and our salvation. Well, first, let's consider what Jesus finishes or accomplishes with his death on the cross. I think as we try to wrap our minds around what it is that Jesus finishes or accomplishes, it's important that we understand the meaning of this word that Jesus utters. In Greek, this word, tetelestai, is less focused on getting something over with. It's not a statement that something's done. And it's more a statement of accomplishing or fulfilling a task or a purpose that's been set out before you. This past week, I began reading David McCullough's book on the digging of the Panama Canal. And he discusses how early on President Grant uh, commissioned uh, a a survey to be taken of the Darien Providence for a a possible place of the canal. And he sends a a group down there uh, to to uh, finish this this, uh, task, and he commands them, do it with thoroughness and care. When Commander Selfridge came back with a high-quality survey of the details of the area and presented them, everyone recognized that it was one of the best pieces of survey work that had been done. And so we could say Commander Selfridge accomplished, finished that task. He did what 
was assigned to him. He finished or completed the task that was given him to do. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says it is finished. In fact, when Jesus uses this word on the cross, he's using the exact same word he used back in chapter 17. When praying to his father, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus' last word here is not merely a statement that my suffering's over, it's done. Or even that his life and perfect obedience are complete but more fully, that Jesus has accomplished the work that his Father has given him to do since before history began. In fact, I think if you and I try to ponder as best as our human minds can the significance of this moment, we realize that from all eternity past, God the Father and God the Son covenanted together in a plan, a purpose, to save a portion of sinful humanity that they might be with them for eternity, and to do so through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son. And while God himself, of course, is outside of time, we can trace all that he has done through the history of time. He's accomplished the work of creation. He's overseen the fall of mankind. He's sovereignly guided human history for thousands of years up to this point for this one goal, the accomplishment of his plan of redemption through his son, the plan that was made from all eternity. And at this moment, on a Friday afternoon in Palestine, with the sun darkened and the earth trembling, Jesus declares with one word that his mission is accomplished. Jim Boyce, the longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, put it so well when he said, Christ's words here are not the final gasping sob of a defeated man or even the firm, deliberate declaration of one who was resigned to his fate. No, they were a triumphant declaration that the turning point of history had been reached and that the work that Jesus had been sent into the world to do was done. This is the significance of the moment that we come to with these words, it is finished. But then maybe think specifically about what all Jesus' life, suffering, and death have accomplished here. They have accomplished or finished the final substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. Cast your mind back, if you will, to the days of Adam and Eve. Maybe put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Adam and Eve stand there in the garden, having been warned that if they sin against God's commandment, death is the penalty. But up till that point, there had been no death. Perhaps Adam and Eve are even wondering, what exactly is death? They know it's bad, they know it's a punishment, but maybe they couldn't fully grasp all that death was. But then in the face of their rebellion, when God comes down to confront their sin, God executes the first sentence of death, not on Adam and Eve, but on animals whose blood is shed in their place. And I I can only imagine the, the visceral reaction that Adam and Eve must have had as they saw death for the first time, as they saw one of God's own creations, whom Adam had named, snuffed out and killed, its blood shed as a payment for the penalty of sin that their sin might be forgiven. 
And yet this was just the first of thousands upon thousands of sacrifices that would be made over the years in the place of sinful men, all awaiting, longing for this final perfect sacrifice that would be made in our place, the death of the Son of God. A sacrifice that would end this perpetual sacrificial system, that would once and for all take away and resolve the wrath of God against sin, that would perfectly secure the forgiveness of any who would put their faith in this Son of God. All that, all those ages of shed blood is brought to completion. The perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sin is accomplished with Jesus' final breath. Or think then about the separation, that the uncrossable gulf that exists between God and sinful humanity. A separation that existed from the moment that God came down in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve as he was wont to do and instead found them hiding for shame of their guilt. A separation that was made final when God justly barred access to the Garden of Eden with the cherubim, with the flaming sword. And yet God's rescue plan had as its goal reconciliation with men and women who would be welcomed back into his presence. Reconciliation. Well, listen, listen, if you would, to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 when he talks about what Christ has accomplished. Listen to how many times he just revels in the reconciliation that Christ accomplishes. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the word to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now I am confident that if you were writing an English paper and turned an English paper in with two sentences that used the same word that many times, you'd be marked down. There'd be red pen on your sentence. But Paul is simply delighting in this core truth. In Christ God has accomplished reconciliation. Sinful enemies have been brought back into his presence, restored to fellowship with God. And that work of reconciliation was accomplished, was finished with Jesus' death on the cross. Well, in Christ's death, the purpose of God from all ages past is accomplished. Sin is atoned for. Sinful men are reconciled to the holy God. All that is finished as Jesus gives up his final breath. But then second, consider with me what Jesus' finished work means for us and for our salvation. And here we have just the glorious blessing in reflecting on the fact that when Jesus declared, it is finished, he was declaring that the work of redemption was fully accomplished, leaving nothing left that needed to be done to receive salvation. It's helpful maybe to understand that in the first century, this word, tetelestai, that Jesus declared, this it is finished word, was actually used in business transactions to mean this transaction has been paid in full. Nothing left is owed. I I still remember the first wedding that I was ever asked to be part of. It's a friend of mine who was a few years older than me, and uh, he asked me to be a groomsman in uh, his wedding. And maybe being a typical uh, high school guy, I had 
really no clue about weddings and certainly didn't know that if you were asked to be a groomsman, you had to pay for your own tux. It seemed counterintuitive to me. So I uh, waltzed out to Washington State for the wedding and didn't even bring a checkbook or credit card or anything along those lines and uh, started to pick up on the fact that when I was going to pick up my tux, there was going to be a balance due and I had no way to pay it. So you can imagine my relief when the groom, as we all gathered at men's warehouse, said, I have a brief thing to share with you. My parents are so thankful that you've flown across the country for my wedding that they have paid for your tuxes. And there it was on my receipt, paid in full. All I needed to do was reach out, grab the tux, and leave without uttering a word of my ignorance and near catastrophe. Well, here we have the same word, paid in full. Not for a business transaction, not for a tuxedo rental, but for the payment of all our sin and the achieving of our redemption, our salvation in Christ. Here we have the life-changing glory of God's grace, undeserved, rich, free, the gift of God's redemption, that we might be bought back from sin, set free from the guilt and shame of our sin, purchased by the blood of Christ, a salvation that is paid in full. And that's what Jesus declares on the cross. Of course, if our salvation is paid in full, that means that there is nothing left that we need to do to earn it or to get it for ourselves. Just as it would have been completely nonsensical for me to turn to the cashier at Men's Warehouse and try to give him some extra money just uh, to make sure the tuxedo rental was secure, it would make no sense for us to say that some effort or work or penance is required on my end to gain the salvation that Jesus accomplishes and declared it is finished, it is paid in full. My only response is to respond in faith. By grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. I'm amazed though how even subtly I'm still tempted so often to not live this out in my own life. When I see my own sin, I'm tempted to try to to demonstrate either by the depth of my sorrow or my horror at my own sin or by my self-accusations or maybe by, by good behavior afterwards that I'm really worthy of God's forgiveness. Of course, repentance, sorrow, and desire for obedience are all correct responses. But they're correct responses not to demonstrate our worthiness or, or earn God's favor back, but merely because God is a holy God and has given us grace in Jesus Christ. Or maybe we find our assurance of salvation in what we do. We know we're saved by Christ, but we're tempted to be so busy in the service of God and others that we actually begin to take our confidence in our salvation from what we are doing, from our faithfulness or service in life. Or maybe we don't even reflect that deeply on our lives at all. Maybe we just assume that we've done a pretty good job at life. We've been involved in church, so God will accept us when we've missed the whole point. Our only hope and our full hope is to believe that I deserve God's wrath and punishment for my sin. But Jesus has paid that punishment in full on the cross. And so we can again marvel at the glory of these words, it 
is finished. In them, Christ declares to us that he has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. In them, he declares that there is nothing left to do. Nothing is undone. Nothing that we must add. It is ours but to trust and receive. And so just as these words, it is finished, bring to mind all the magnificence and the significance of what Jesus has accomplished. Show it assures our hearts of our salvation in him. Well, before we end, I just want to think briefly with you of how this word, these words that Jesus uttered before his dying breath, changes our outlook on both life and on death. Consider our life. When I look at Jesus on the cross, his death changes my life, both by freeing me from the burden of sin and by motivating me to live for his glory. Consider first, how it frees me from the burden of my sin. 1 John 2 gives us these beautiful words. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I realize that I am a bit of a a people pleaser, I tend to be a rule keeper, and I tend to be weighed down by guilt and shame when I see my sin. But I think even the born rebels among us know what it is to face guilt in the face of our sin. We are all created by God, and our consciences are given to us as a gift to warn us of our guilt before God when we sin. This guilt and this shame in the face of our failure can be debilitating especially in the face of the sins that I find in my heart and my life over and over again. At some point as we confess to pride or gossip or a lust again and again, we we start to wonder if God really continues to forgive me until we come back to the cross and see Jesus there saying, it is finished. He is the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away God's anger for all our sins. And that sacrifice was fully finished on the cross. But not only does Jesus' finished sacrifice give me hope in the face of my guilt, it also encourages me and motivates me to live for his glory. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The purchase price for you and for me has been paid in full. We are no longer our own. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And our calling now is to glorify Him in our bodies. When I'm faced with things in this world that are attractive and that my heart desires, or when I'm faced with people in my life who annoy me, or insult me, or try my patience. When I'm faced with opportunities or requests or demands that that require a lot of me or cost me my leisure or my rest or money, then I see Jesus hanging on the cross, declaring it is finished. I have paid for his redemption in full, and our hearts are motivated and energized to say my life is not my own. My life is his, and so I long to glorify my Savior with my life in every way possible. So Jesus' sacrifice changes our outlook on life, giving us hope in the face of guilt, and motivating us to glorify him 
But Jesus' sacrifice also changes our view of death by freeing us from the fear of what is coming inevitably. You know, there's a lot of discussion about death these days. It can be easy to forget, though, that death is coming for every single one of us. I think it would be fair to say that one hallmark of 21st century American life is the expectation that between medicine and technology and wealth and opportunity, we typically don't expect that we'll die anytime soon. I read one author uh, recently who said, every American thinks that he will die someday, but certainly not this year. And we think that no matter how old or in what situation we are in. In fact, I think we often expect that we shouldn't have to die anytime soon. And the result is that we typically push death to the margins of our thoughts completely. And the result is that when we happen into, say, a pandemic, the prospect of death or a situation that our medical, con- medical system has no way to stop overwhelms us with fear. But that does not need to be the case because Jesus when he declares it is finished and purchases our redemption, changes our entire outlook on death as well. This past week, Carl Truman, a a pastor who's preached here in this pulpit on a number of occasions and now a professor at Grove City College, wrote a striking article on what we learn as Christians from the coronavirus pandemic. And in it, he argues that every person is guaranteed to die. And this pandemic is just reminding us of that inevitable truth. But he says the church's task is not to help people feel happy about their lives now, but is to prepare people to face this reality before this reality itself comes calling. Truman concludes his essay this way. He says, the church is certainly to help people live, but to live in light of their mortality. She must set this earthly realm in the greater context of eternity. She is to prepare people through her preaching, her liturgy, her psalmody, and her sacraments to realize that death is, yes, a terrible, terrifying reality we must all someday face, but that the suffering of this world, or for that matter, the passing superficial prosperity of this world, are but light and momentary ephemera compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come in Jesus Christ. This is not a morbid thought. This is the most glorious thought. And isn't this exactly what Jesus offers us in his final words on the cross? When he, we hear him utter, it is finished, we are given an assurance that the final sacrifice for sin has been made, that he has completed our reconciliation with God, that he has paid in full for our redemption, so that because he has died under the weight of God's wrath, we can face death with the hope of the weight of his glory? That changes how we live in a pandemic. It changes how we live in the face of suffering and death. It changes how we live in the face of prosperity and apparent ease. Christ's finished work on the cross changes our outlook on life and on death and brings glory and hope and peace and joy in both. Well, as Christians, we have the unassailable assurance of facing Good Friday tomorrow as Jesus hangs on the cross with the knowledge that Easter morning is right around the corner. But don't shortchange the opportunity that we have 
the next few days to meditate on Jesus' death and all that he bore for our sake and all that he has accomplished on the cross for our sake. For it was on the cross that Jesus could say with triumphant certainty, the goal of all of history has been accomplished. The work that God gave me to do is finished. The redemption of my people is complete. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, may we be overwhelmed with joy at the glory of such a Savior. May our hearts see and remember His suffering with thanksgiving and gratitude. May we be motivated and encouraged to live our lives for the glory of the one who has purchased ours. May we face suffering and death with the hope that these light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the guaranteed weight of glory coming after death. What a Savior. We thank you, God, in Christ's name. Amen.